1: Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay. Plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24-monthly bill credits for well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement. due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com.
0: Welcome to KCBS In Depth. A discussion of one of the topics making news this week. This is KCBS in depth. Thanks for joining us on In-Depth. I'm Jeffrey Schaub. We are coming to you from the campus of Sonoma State University in Roner Park. This is a fabulous school, a beautiful campus. It's a pleasure to be here today, and it's a pleasure to have Professor David McEwen on the program. He is chair of the Department of Political Science here at Sonoma State. Some of you may uh, recognize him as a political analyst on KCBS going many, many years back. Thanks for being with us this morning. What I want to ask you about is, anonymous. Is this a game changer? Well, if we look at what's happened over the last
1: week, and certainly the op ed that was published by Anonymous, it, it has given the White House fits and starts. This is a White House that has had difficulty managing the president, a White House having difficulty managing the message. And certainly the op ed changes the dynamic. You're less than 60 days out from a midterm election, which is turning into, for Democratic challengers, attempting to grab the House, it's turning into a referendum on the president. And, and the president keeps fanning the flames in terms of uh, outing Anonymous and what happens. It's going to be difficult for Anonymous to remain Anonymous. And that will be a game changer within the administration. If Anonymous is outed, and we find out who this person is, it also will linger this type of... Uh, this narrative. It, it will continue the story for a bit. And that's going to drag us into this midterm election period where Democrats are trying to build some type of narrative as a referendum on the president. Democrats have a message problem uh, in terms of exactly what they're talking about, but their message so far is a referendum on the presidency. The president, by responding to this and the White House responding to this, continues to build that narrative. They continue to build into uh, the Democrats' referendum referendum on the president. And that's really not so much about the Democratic base or the Republican base, that's about independent voters and what happens to those independents. Those independents play a key role, not only in the Bay Area or in California in a governor's race for ballot measures for what's coming up in November, but for House races across the country, for what happens in Pennsylvania, Minnesota, upstate New York, New Jersey. And those independent voters, particularly suburban women, are going to be absolutely key. And that's the battle that's going on. As you look at what happens with Anonymous, and they talk about a president who manages his presidency really from the hip. It's an ad hoc presidency in which he's uh, a, moral in the op-ed, or really, this is a president that's agnostic. His political beliefs are those that are really just uh, agnostic about what he's going to do, who he's going to give money to, who he's going to back. If you look specifically back at his political career, it's been all over the map in terms of who he's supporting and what's going on. And that's how he's governing. And that unstable kind of governing pattern, the instability of that has thrown Republicans back on their heels, but only privately so, not publicly. So one thing to watch with Anonymous and what spins out from this is the degree to which Republicans move away from the president because so far this is Donald Trump's Republican Party. He's taken it over, and by taking it over, what he's been able to do is completely revamp the establishment of the Republican Party, and Republicans have backed that. Lindsey Graham, the senator from South Carolina, would be the biggest example of this. He has been against Donald Trump, for Donald Trump. He obviously is someone who is close to the late John McCain uh, as a maverick, but he's also someone who's embraced this president very closely because he's worried about how that party has changed, and he's emblematic or symptomatic of the Republican Party. Party today. The same thing we see with Paul Ryan, who's a lame duck, and who comes next? Kevin McCarthy, is it going to be Steve Scalise? And the attack on big tech or high tech is an example of this battle that's going on for the heart and soul in the direction of the Republican Party. This says nothing about the Mueller investigation. This says nothing about Russia or Rudy Giuliani or what comes next. If you think about what's happened in the last week, the Kavanaugh hearings, what's happened with Russia and Mueller, what's happened with Rudy Giuliani, 60 days out, less than 60 days out from a midterm election, all in the context of anonymous. This has been a heck of a week, and we would have said that a week ago
0: or a year ago, and it just continues to build and build and build. The other big story this week, (laughs) Brett Kavanaugh and his Senate confirmation hearings for the U.S. Supreme Court. Kamala Harris, U.S. Senator Kamala Harris from California, she's played a big role in this. She's had a lot of FaceTime, and she has really gone after Kavanaugh and brought up a lot of things that the Democrats think are very, very important. Why are we seeing so much from her and not as much from Diane Feinstein? What's going on with that?
1: Yeah, I mean, if you look at the Senate Judiciary Committee, there's a couple of things going on here. We've seen a lot of FaceTime from uh, Kamala Harris from California, but also from Cory Booker uh, as well, a senator from New Jersey. Uh, both. Both of them are on the shortlist for potential Democratic nominees uh, to run in 2020. But you have someone like Senator Feinstein, who's up for re-election, but you haven't seen as much from her. She's the ranking Democrat going on here. You have uh, 10 Democrats on the Senate Judiciary Committee, 11 Republicans. And you have a veritable who's who on each side of the members of the Senate Judiciary. It really is uh, an all-star team. And the all-star team that's going on here is to highlight the differences, the contrast between the administration, between POTUS 45, between the Trump administration and what Democrats want. That's why you've seen people like Cory Booker and like Kamala Harris, who are building the narrative as potential nominees. This is a tryout for them. This is really a tryout before the nation. While Kavanaugh, who's remained relatively steady, uh, he hasn't really had any faux pas or anything, and one of the biggest issues where you saw Kamala Harris push forward is the role of presidential power. But you saw a number of Democrats push forward on presidential power. This is going to be key because not only of what we learned from U.S. v. Nixon, Right. And what we learned post Watergate in terms of presidential power. But what potentially could happen if the president is forced to testify or wants to give the special counsel, wants to uh, you know, change the Justice Department and the AG, all of the things the president has talked about and tweeted about this has a potential conflict. If Democrats were to win the House, there are lots of things that they could do to get the president's tax returns. For example, the Ways and Means chair, if it's a Democrat, can subpoena for those tax returns. Those returns don't come forward. Then it's a contempt of Congress. This becomes uh, an impeachable or it leads to uh, articles of impeachment that can be drawn. But in the Senate side, it's a much different animal. The Senate functions such that Democrats are going to be very – it's going to be very difficult for them to win the Senate this particular election. They're really on the defensive. And so you have to highlight some of the contrasts. It really is a club of equals. And that club of equals is interesting because you have essentially California's rookie senator who can audition for the 2020 potential lead of the of the Democratic Party. And maybe that isn't to run as the presidential nominee but to be a vice presidential
0: candidate. So here's the thing. She's been on the job, what, two years? Two years. almost. Almost two, years. Almost two years. Okay, mm-hmm. is she really viable, having been in the Senate for just a short period of time? No, uh, and
1: here's why: uh, Kamala Harris has not had to disappoint a constituency that's core in the Democratic Party. She hasn't been battle tested. Uh, she can raise money in the ether, and that's a reflection of the weak Democratic base, the, re- the weak Democratic bench that's going on. You still have someone like Joe Biden, former Vice President Joe Biden, who's a giant. He can raise lots of money, has that fundraising capability, has announced uh, that he'll make a decision by January about what to do. But right now, someone like Kamala Harris can fill the ether, but she hasn't been battle tested in terms of dollars, organization, or disappointing a constituency. The same thing could go, you could say, for Lieutenant Governor Gavin Newsom, California's likely next. Governor. He hasn't been battle tested as well in terms of disappointing a constituency. That's the difficulty of governing versus electioneering. Right now, you can run for election, you can constantly run for election, and that's relatively easy. The difficulty is actually governing, making the trains run on time. That's the real test for Kamala Harris and for Gavin Newsom,
0: California's next set or next generation of leaders. Okay, Diane Feinstein up for re election. We have less than two months to go. Is she a shoe in? Uh, she certainly is uh, operating from a position
1: of strength. Uh, the, the way that she wins is not not having any faux pas. So that means you don't have a debate. You continue to press and press. And Kevin DeLeon has to find some way to cut through.
0: Save some type of health episode or health scare. Dianne Feinstein will win re-election, no problem. Okay. Now, the big banana this year, of course, are the House races less than two months away. A lot of people say it that the Democrats are going to retake the House. That's kind of a given in some quarters. How does California play into that? Yeah, very good question. So so California is absolutely critical to Democrats' hopes
1: to win the House. The reason for this is that you, you can't, you don't see Democrats winning the House without picking up some of those uh, red to blue seats. These are the seats that the D Trip, the D Triple C, has targeted. The Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. These are uh, seats in California uh, districts that Hillary Clinton won, but are represented by a Republican. So you see something like Darrell Issa's district, the 49th in Southern California, which is technically an open seat. But you also see seats held by Dana Rohrabacher, Ed Royce, Mimi Walters. Uh, Jeff Denham, David Valadeo. Democrats have targeted this and they've expanded the map because they feel the wind at their back. We run a mathematical model which uses data from presidential approval and uses uh, data about uh, the state of the economy. And our model shows that Democrats win between 50 and 55 seats. Now, let's be clear. The models we see out of Washington, D.C., The models we see from others in the media aren't that high. They do show a Democratic wave, but they don't show that big a wave. That wave is building, and we see that wave in California, in Pennsylvania, in Minnesota, in New Jersey, in New York. And if Democrats want to win the House, they have to win half of those seats that they've targeted. They've targeted 10 in California. They need to pick up five, and they also need to net three or four in Pennsylvania. That will give them the 23 seats that they need to win the House of Representatives.
0: We talk about the blue wave. Do you think there's a chance that voters will go to the polls? And hold their nose and say, you know what, I'm going to vote for the other guy. I'm going to vote for the other woman. I'm a Republican. I don't like what's going on in the White House. Do you think there's any chance at all that uh, Democrats could take the Senate? It's hard to see Democrats taking the
1: Senate because of the states that they are holding on or to the, that they're on the defensive. So you look at a state like Montana, where John Tester uh, is running for re-election. The president was just uh, in Montana this past week, talking as much about what was going on with Anonymous and what's going on in Washington, D.C. as he was what, is happening in the Montana Senate race. But Montana's a red state, and John Tester is a different type of Democrat. We move just east of there to North Dakota. Heidi Heitkamp is a key vote for the president on guns, on financial services legislation. She's the U.S. senator from North Dakota. Uh, But she's a different type of Democrat. Joe Donnelly from Indiana or Joe Manchin from West Virginia. All of these are seats where the president is going to talk nicely about those U.S. senators but also campaign hard against them. You're going to see Barack Obama in California campaigning in those red to blue districts, you're going to see Donald Trump come to California to raise money and raise the profile of someone like Devin Nunez. But that raising of the profile by the former president, Barack Obama, and the current president, Donald Trump, is going to place California front and center in terms of what happens in House races, a different animal in the Senate, just because Democrats are on defensive turf. You're
0: listening to In-Depth on KCBS. I'm Jeffrey Schaub. Our guest today is Professor David McEwen. He's chair of the Department of Political Science at Sonoma State University. We're on the campus here in Ronert Park. It's a pleasure to be here and to have the professor with us today. Now, Gavin Newsom, he's going to be the next governor of California,
1: right? There's a lot of different dynamics happening here for California's next generation of leaders. And and for Republicans, it's difficult to be relevant statewide. And Gavin Newsom is certainly operating from that position of strength. He's got name recognition and name ID. He's got those regular habitual voters in that Democratic base that helps him. Now, John Cox, his uh, Republican challenger, is having difficulty kind of cutting through and finding relevance. One way that he can find that relevance is by the repeal of the gas tax, uh, Proposition 6. Uh, that helps. but that's more symptomatic or emblematic of where the Republican Party is at. Difficult for Republicans to win statewide. And Gavin Newsom then has the challenge of moving from electioneering to governing. He's promised all kinds of things to all kinds of groups. Healthcare, education, infrastructure, changes in information technology. But he hasn't had to disappoint any of these groups. And one thing to watch is what happens with Gavin Newsom's relationship with the state legislature. He doesn't have deep relationships there. And Democrats gave Jerry Brown a pass Uh, Jerry Brown, a different type of governor, a different type of Democrat, someone who's a spendthrift and and really fiscally conservative and didn't want to spend a lot of money. Democrats own the state legislature and they want to do things. Speaker Rendon, Speaker Anthony Rendon
0: wants to do stuff. And the question is... Well, I remember Brown was overheard shortly after he went into office, I'm here to get S done, right? Is that the case with Newsom, you think?
1: Yeah, Democrats will certainly give Gavin Newsom a pass to get some things done. The problem is how do you get things done in a state that already has a pretty high level of uh, expenditures and revenues, a pretty high level of taxation. Voters feel fiscally stressed. They're worried, uh, even though the economy is moving along. So you have this voter in California who's kind of a Jekyll and Hyde voter, right? They want good roads, good schools. They don't want to pay for those things. Uh, And and this is going to give them a a headache and they're going to have to smoke a a joint uh, in the process. But nonetheless, this Jekyll and Hyde voter, it's difficult to govern that voter. And so Gavin Newsom, as the next governor of California, is going to have to navigate a place where everyone is going to be calling in uh, their bets. Everyone's going to want spending. Uh, that spending is going to be big. You have a huge portion of the budget that's devoted to K-14 through education, mm-hmm. uh, the junior colleges, uh, and K-12. through You have a changing California in terms of its demographics and what's happening. You have a red-blue divide that's deep within the state on social and cultural issues. And you have a guy who's clearly the future of the Democratic Party. And the question is, does he look past California into 2020 in a in a weakened Democratic field. You also have a guy in Southern California named Eric Garcetti who's a potential rival to this and as California's junior senator Kamala Harris. So in some ways this particular midterm election is more about what happens in California as anti-Trump, the juxtaposition against the Trump administration as much as it is what's happening in Washington D.C. and within the White House itself and that's squarely where Gavin Newsom, Kamala Harris, and Eric Garcetti want to be.
0: Okay, he sits on the Board of Regents for the uh, University of California, and he's a big advocate for education, preschool. Is this going to be a big push for him? It will be a big push, and what he's
1: done so far in his campaign is push for everything. Uh, and he hasn't had to disappoint constituencies. That's going to be kind of the key role for, for Gavin Newsom. How do you navigate disappointment? Whether that's going to be the California Nurses Association on health care, whether that's going to be the California Teachers Association uh, on what's happening with K-12, K-14 education, what happens with infrastructure, how are you going to deliver transportation and maintain the viability uh, of Google? What are you going to do about housing? Maybe the singularly most important issue in California, not just in the North Bay in the, way, in the wake of tragic fires Or in Santa Barbara, but throughout the state. So there's this divide that's going on over quality of life, schools, education, transportation, housing healthcare. That future kind of battle is something that is relatively unknown because candidates have promised a lot, but how are they going to deliver on those promises, Mm -hmm. especially with the legislature that's going to have 120 members, but a thousand different priorities on how to spend money. So here we are on the campus of Sonoma State University.
0: Does this university and others need more funding, more focus? Because more and more Students are coming into these the schools, right?
1: Yeah, you, ha- you have a changing demographic in California. You, you need more workers, uh, if you will. And so there's a real push to graduate more students. The difficulty is getting those resources into the classroom. And so what you want to do is have quality education. You want to prepare that, that workforce for the future. Mm-hmm. And that requires uh, more professors. That requires more teaching. It requires more assets in the classroom for the quality of the instruction that we're trying to deliver. California simply can't graduate enough people mm-hmm. for the workforce. Of the future. That's the divide. So we're going to have to increase what we're doing, but we have to maintain the quality to do that. That's very difficult uh, to do in these demanding circumstances. Students want to graduate fast. Parents are paying more and more for education. Education is more costly. And at the same time, you want to maintain quality. And, And the workforce is changing. People are much more mobile. They're less wed to their jobs. We're in the midst of this grand social experiment that's going on. It's a heck of a fun time to be teaching in the classroom. It's a lot of fun to be talking about politics. We have more majors than ever before. People are engaged in paying attention. They're just engaged in paying attention in kind of a negative way for all the wrong reasons.
0: (laughs) Jerry Brown. What do you think his legacy
1: is going to be? So Jerry Brown's legacy is not to go gently into that fair wind. Uh, he's still going to be relevant uh, after this. He's going to be relevant because he's going to titillate about possibly running for president. It's not that he's going to run for president. It's that he's going to go to Iowa or New Hampshire and talk about what's going on. He, he's someone who still f- still feels that he has a relevance to the divide and what's happening, a new type of Democrat, because he's someone who was successful by being a spendthrift, someone who was able to move past the legacy of a very famous political family to carve his own way. Someone who could talk about carbon emissions uh, and the carbon tax and what's going on with global climate change and reach across the aisle with another political giant, the former other California governor, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Mm -hmm. And that bridging of the gap in a country that is riddled by Hyperpartisanship partisanship and negativity is something that's novel and joins, if you will, twins. Not Danny DeVito, right? And Arnold Schwarzenegger, but Arnold Schwarzenegger and California's current governor, Jerry Brown. His legacy will be that bipartisanship and a new wave of Democrat. That makes him relevant beyond 2020, as long as he wants to stay on the political scene. Will he be remembered as a strong effective governor? He will be remembered as a strong, effective governor. But, you know, he's been in and out of California politics for so long. And he's also someone who's been relatively flexible about his beliefs. He was for Proposition 13, against Proposition 13, went back and forth in that campaign in 1978. He's someone who reformed the amount of money in politics by the California Political Reform Act, Prop 9, back in the wake of Watergate. He's someone who's been all over the map. Now he's someone who's tried to build a legacy about what he believes as a new wave of being a flexible Democrat. And that's a lesson for the Democratic Party nationally, especially as they battle between, say, the establishment and the progressive wing, something the Democrats have not resolved. And a place that Kamala Harris, for example, is finding a way to navigate forward. Gavin Newsom's trying to find a a way to navigate forward. And then you have the granddaddy of politics of California, the big daddy, if you will, now. And that big daddy is not Jess Unruh. That big daddy is... Jerry Brown.
0: You're listening to In-Depth on KCBS, and our guest today is the chair of the Department of Political Science and Professor David McEwen. We're coming to you from the campus of Sonoma State University in Rohnert Park. Thanks again for being with us. I want to ask you um, something more locally here in the Bay Area. Well, actually statewide, excuse me. There is a gas tax repeal measure on the ballot. I think it was last year that uh, we ended up with a 17 percent increase Per gallon in the gas tax. But now there's this measure to repeal that. What's that all about? Who's behind that?
1: Yeah, if you look at kind of the history of California politics in the modern era, say move from the mid-1970s forward, you start to see that California suffers these political earthquakes every few years. Proposition 13, term limits, mm-hmm. uh, certainly uh, the recall of Gray Davis in 2003, and then this political earthquake of what to do on the gas tax. The gas tax is a tremendous motivator for certain elements of the state that are worried about tax. And when Democrats passed this and moved this forward, this gas tax, it gave the third party in California more and more voters registering as uh, third party or as no party preference, right? Uh, They have no party preference. And the third party of California are Republicans. They've moved into this status, uh, not just of Democrat, Republican, but no party preference has overtaken them. The Republican and the anti-property tax movement and the anti-tax movement, property taxes, sales taxes, use taxes, something like the gas tax, has become hugely powerful. As a Motivator. It's a reason that uh, Republicans and independent minded Republicans would come out to vote for John Cox for governor. Uh, they might cast a vote uh, uh, of no across many incumbents, but it, it illustrates the power of the movement on gas taxes, especially if there's any economic drawback. As gas prices have risen overall, and California, the Bay Area, having the the highest rates for uh, gas per gallon in the country, that is a tremendous motivator, even in the liberal Bay Area, even in liberal bastions of California, and it's a huge motivator for independent-minded voters in the Central Valley, in purple areas of California, and in red areas of California. So California's got all these kinds of voters that are conflicted. They're, They're constricted about what to do. They're registering more and more as independents, now they have a reason to come out. And Republicans find themselves in a place as the third party that they need to be relevant. The anti-gas tax, the, the, the gas tax repeal is a tremendous motivator, not only for their base, but also for those voters that are no party preference voters. And that's where they find their relevance. And we see this for how Republicans are running for office. If it's difficult for them to get elected statewide, they run as independents for insurance commissioner. They run as independents in other areas. And as a way to do that, they can find their relevance. Because Republicans have had difficulty getting elected to statewide office as Republicans per se, But there are thousands of Republican office holders at the local level. Now, we have local nonpartisan offices, but that's where they're looking to pluck people. And the gas tax allows you to cull that field. Democrats have been tremendously successful at this and owning statewide office and owning the state legislature. But they face, they each face different problems. Republicans face a demographic problem and Democrats face a geographic problem. Mm -hmm. Democrats tend to be siloed, if you will, into those coastal areas, those counties that touch water in California. That's the geographic problem they have. And Republicans have a demographic problem. California is changing dramatically in terms of what the population looks like, who's coming into colleges and universities, for example, and many people feel that they don't represent their interests. Each party having a problem. We see this nationally. We see this uh, throughout uh, really many states, but California really is the experimental ground for that. Voters that want to make a lot of money uh, work at Google or uh, work in Silicon Valley, but don't want to pay a lot of taxes, uh, and they don't want to be bothered
0: with who they sleep with or what they do with their own lives. So here's the thing. Uh, Earlier this week, I interviewed one of the council members for the city of Petaluma. And we were talking about Highway 101 because they have a big expansion project there. It's on the drawing board. They're kind of ready to go in the next two years. They want to widen the lanes. Traffic through Petaluma and Rohnert Park, as you know, is, is a nightmare. It's two lanes in each direction. But if the gas tax is repealed, in that project alone, they could lose $85 million in funding. And that thing comes to a stop, at least for a while. How big of a deal is this in the Bay Area if the tax is repealed?
1: Yeah, this is, it's a huge deal because what what you've seen is, is localities, local governments have, to, and local government officials have to find ways to cull together money. That money has to be some combination of federal dollars, state dollars, local use dollars to pay for projects because they're so expensive. And this really is a test here not only of Governor Brown uh, and his ability to protect one of his legacies, which he has a huge uh, amount of funding to help with this ballot measure or to transfer money. There's lots of ability to do this under California campaign finance law. But what you have, at least locally, is local government constrained, finding ways to raise money and getting creative to do that. But you have to grab lots of different sources, and voters get ticked off about that. You've only had 101 under construction for the last 20 years. It's only going to be that way the next 10 or 20 years. And if the gas tax is repealed, that process of actually raising money and continuing those projects, uh, that that's going to really be called into question, and then local government's going to have to get creative again. The thing that happens is this gives the anti-tax crowd uh, a, more momentum to stay involved and to find that relevance, and this is where Republicans are finding their relevance, at least locally, but it also gets Democrats involved to think about different ways that they can manage projects and what to do. In the meantime, you have large agencies, ABAG, MTC, you have regional agencies, you have transportation and housing related, quality of life and jobs, all related. This is a huge challenge in the Bay Area, and if the gas tax is repealed, it will send a shot across the bow of how to manage those projects. It will have a tremendous impact not only on
0: Highway 101 in Petaluma, but a tremendous uh, impact throughout the Bay Area. Then finally, I want to talk to you about this. I think you said that your sister lost her home in the North Bay Fires. She lived at Fountain Grove. Right. And what do you think we need to learn from this
1: experience? All right, so there is a tremendous opportunity to learn from this case, uh, this tragic case, about how local government can respond, about how regional government can respond, uh, about communication, right? When we have these tragic events, uh, 9-11, uh, huge crises of life, they present tremendous opportunities in terms of how to learn to make things more effective. Local government is constrained to raise money by regulation for sharing information uh, between what happens between the state and federal government. And what this does is it provides a crisis or writing moment, an opportunity to change public policy policy in dramatic ways. But what you start to see is how linked things are, water policy, land use policy, transportation, jobs, uh, the regulation of housing and the rebuild. All of that requires government to be agile. This is a government that was designed 200-plus years ago to be slow, conservative, and not agile. And you find lawmakers and legislators trying to find ways to maneuver and relax legislation for a government designed not to be flexible. The biggest lesson, I think, to learn is try to create flexibility and experimentation in government which is not something that we have seen. Let the locals do what the locals do best and experiment and act adult. I mean politics if you think about it is a game for adults. You have to trust individuals and we are not in a place where we are very trusting of government and local officials
0: experimenting and that's what you need is that ability to experiment. Well here in Sonoma County of course the board of supervisors, the city council in Santa Rosa, they're doing their best to to try to meet this challenge. But it's also very, very expensive. It's very expensive.
1: You you don't have the ability to pay for it if you're the city of Santa Rosa or if you're the county of Sonoma. So you have to rely on the state government. You have to rely on FEMA and the federal government. And those are agencies and, and entities that are not agile in their response. You also have a uh, you also have a you know an administration in Washington D.C. that's going to be hostile to a lot of what California does. So the key thing is to not. Politicize disasters. Uh, the disasters are apolitical or nonpartisan, and we need to have an approach that is much more flexible and agile about this and trusting. Uh, and it's difficult to do that if you're in Sacramento uh, because you know what's best, or it's difficult to do that if you're in Washington. You have to provide some hope and flexibility for individuals, and that requires lessening control. This is not something that government is particularly
0: well, adapt, uh, well adapted to. You have to trust the locals. You've been listening to In Depth here on KCBS. And our guest has been uh, Professor David McEwen. He's chair of the Department of Political Science at Sonoma State University. We're here at Sonoma State. That's where we are originating this program from. David, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be on. And thank you for listening. You've just heard KCBS In Depth, a news interview program for All News 740 and FM 1069 KCBS.